Well, I want to invite you to turn in your worship guide to page 12. Uh, if you don't have a worship guide or prefer to, uh, you can open your, your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Book of Romans chapter 8, it's uh, in the New Testament, just follows the book of Acts. So the way you think about it is you've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you have Acts, and then you have Romans. And this is, um, <clears throat> I'm going to read to you from verses 1 through 8, and then invite you to respond. Would you listen now with open ears as I read these words from the book that we love? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father God, we come to this time, we sit under these words, we've sung these songs, we've confessed our faith. And Lord, I recognize that as we assemble here this morning, uh, that we do assemble coming from all kinds of different places. Lord, some of us come in uh, this room and our hearts are filled with joy as this room is filled with sunshine. Lord, others of us uh, have come in here or are joining uh, from home, and our hearts are filled with all kinds of burdens. Uh, some of us are dealing with uh, a deep depression. Others of us are grieving. Uh, some of us, it feels like, are without hope. And Lord, I recognize further that uh, some of us come here with a deep and a sincere faith in you, an interest in, in hearing how these words uh, might impact the places of our lives that are in need of the greatest healing, but others of us come here and we're not sure if you're real or perhaps we're quite convinced that you're not real. Lord, I pray that whatever place we find ourselves in, whether we are here in joy or in despair, whether we come in with faith or with all kinds of doubts, I pray that you would give us grace to see that in the way that matters the most, that we do all come the same. We all have come with an overwhelming and an unrelenting need to hear from you, to know you, to be changed by you. Pray that you would open our eyes, show us how you have addressed this need and the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. I uh, want to consider with you this morning, uh, as, as is appropriate on Easter morn, some of the significance of the events of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So if you're here and you're not um, entirely familiar with Christian faith, I want to tell you that Christian faith is uh, everything hangs on the reality, on the historical reality that there was a man named Jesus Christ who claimed not just to teach about God, but claimed to be God, 
he, was, he, he angered the wrong people. He was subsequently executed unjustly for crimes he did not commit. He was in a grave for three days, and then by God's power, he was raised from the dead, and he was seen by over 400 eyewitnesses, right? And it's recorded in sacred writings, but also in secular writings. You can find testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He taught, he lived among folks uh, for a period of time after his resurrection, and then he ascended into heaven. And Christian doctrine teaches that he lives to make intercession for his people. That means he lives to pray. And for the resurrection, you cannot overstate the significance of the resurrection, right? In fact, Scripture will say that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the Christian of all people ought to be most pitied. That if, if, if Christ actually didn't rise from the dead, that if you have faith in Christ and you trust in him, that, that you ought to be pitied, that we ought to feel bad for you because you're building your life on a falsehood. And what we glean from, glean from that is that the resurrection has a profound and a powerful effect on the way that we live our lives today. And what I would like to do with you this morning is I would like to consider with you one angle of that teaching, right? One angle in which the resurrection of Jesus Christ ought to have a powerful effect on our lives. And the angle of which I'm considering is captured by the words of this passage, set free, right? That the resurrection of Jesus Christ has on the life of a Christian, and this is true, by the way, for those of you who are not here as Christians, but perhaps you will be persuaded today or in the days to come, and this could be true for you, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is intended to have an, a freeing effect on you. So I want to try to examine that teaching from this passage uh, and set this up for you. So that's where we're going today. That's what I'm going to try to accomplish in uh, the few moments that we have together. To set this up appropriately, I'm going to read a little bit more than I usually would from an article that I think is one of the most important, insightful explanations of what is happening in our culture. This article was written in 2017. Uh, I read it, um, I think, right around then, right around when it came out, and I found it so incredibly striking, but then I revisited it in preparation for this sermon, and after the events of the last year, uh, I'm, I'm convinced that it was to some degree prophetic of what would be the case in our culture in ways far beyond what I expected as I read it in 2017. It's written by a man named Wilfred McClay, and the name of the article is The Strange Persistence of Guilt. The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Let me read to you a little bit from it. He writes this, he says, those of us living in the developed countries of the West find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox one whose shape and character have so far largely eluded our understanding. It is the strange persistence of guilt as a psychological force in modern life. If anything, the word persistence understates the matter. Guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown, even metastasized, into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. Even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from discourse, 
the means of containing its effect, let alone obtaining relief from it, have become ever more elusive. Prophets such as Friedrich Nietzsche were confident that once the modern West world, Western world finally threw off the medical, metaphysical straitjacket that had confined the possibilities of all previous generations, the moral reflexes that had accompanied that framework would disappear along with them. With God dead, all would indeed be permitted. Chief among the outdated, ref outmoded reflexes would be the experience of guilt, an obvious vestige of irrational fear promulgated by oppressive, life-denying institutions erected in the name and image of a punitive deity. With a, quote, death of God, meaning God's general cultural unavailability, we should expect to see a consequent decline in the consciousness of human debt. But he goes on to say, he goes on to argue that those predictions, the predictions of Nietzsche, for example, have not only not happened, but that actually the reality of guilt in our world has only increased as the presence, the awareness of God has decreased Nietzsche and other thinkers thought if God decreases in a, in a society, that guilt will decrease because we won't feel bad for doing things. But instead, what we found, especially in the last year, but even prior to that, is we found that there's more guilt now than perhaps has ever been felt in our, in our culture. Let me um, read on from you. He argues that a better prophet... <laughs> Uh, a better prophet of the things to come is, of course, uh, the, the thinker Sigmund Freud, who argued that there's a sort of malaise, and I'm going to apologize to my German brothers and sisters, that he called unbegogen. So I get that right? Is that right? No? Okay. A yeah, little bit? Okay. Ready? Everyone say it with me. Unbegogen. <laughs> and this is what he says that is. It's, quote, a dissatisfaction for which people seek other explanations, whether internal or external. Right? That's what Freud is arguing is at the center of our experience is this unbegogen, which, which, we, which he's calling guilt. He says, guilt is a crafty trickster and chameleon capable of disguising itself, hiding out, changing its size and appearance, even its location, all the while managing to persist and deepen. And he goes on to explain, he says, whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I would, could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough or support medical research enough or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. And what he goes on to say is that it's surprising because we would expect that with God being talked about less in a culture, that guilt would likewise uh, recede, but instead we found that it's only heightened. But the problem is, and I'm not going to read more from you, for you for this article. I'm happy to send it to you if you email me. It's, it's really worth your time. What he goes on to say is that the problem is, is that as the teaching of Christian faith has receded from a society so also the teaching of forgiveness has also receded. And we, we do have guilt. It, uh, it's simply people are feeling guilty about things that are different when, 
from when Christian faith had more of a prominent place in society, right? So instead of feeling guilty over, um, you know, having uh, sex outside of marriage, for example, now we feel guilty for our carbon footprint. We feel guilty uh, for the lives that we live. We feel guilty for not um, saying the appropriate terms. And the guilt has risen and risen and risen. And in, in particular, in the last year, I think, with the uh, advent of cancel culture, right? What, cancel culture is the idea that if you, if you commit certain sins deemed worthy of canceling by the culture, there is no possibility ever of forgiveness, right? And, and we've seen instances where um, teenage girls have made statements that are then re- brought up from the dead, right, as it were, on social media. That, that s- there was one instance where a girl made a, a, a wrong statement, and someone saved that video waiting for her to get accepted into the Ivy League, and then was able to get her acceptance rescinded, right? And, and what's happening with that? Well, what's happening is that in our current culture, as the knowledge of God recedes, there is no possibility of forgiveness, so we are living in a world where forgiveness is becoming increasingly out of reach, right? That if you commit the wrong sin, that there is no possibility for forgiveness. So that's where we are. And friends, I say that, I set that up for you because I think that in order to understand what this passage is saying, you have to understand the phenomenon of the world that we are living in and how the, what is the word of Christ for you today from this passage. So that now I want to look at uh, the Scriptures, spend the rest of our time on the Scriptures, and attempt to unpack how God is seeking to set you free, to set you free through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's look at that together. Well, we, we learned from uh, the article I read extensively from that the reality of guilt uh, has only increased, it's not decreased, and the reality of guilt in this passage is looked at as a controlling force, right? So if you're in business, right, if you're in business or you're an investor, for example, we talk about, uh, you know, a founder of a company buying, quote, a controlling interest in that company. What does that mean? It means that that one individual owning 50.1% of a company is able to single-handedly make decisions about the company because he or she is able to outvote the rest of the shareholders, Okay? In the similar way, guilt here in this passage is looked at to be a controlling force in our lives. Right? It, it, it has a 50.1% interest in the way that we live our lives, and it exercises not just a, a whisper to us, but it exercises a controlling force in our lives. And so in verse 2, Reflecting on the work of Jesus Christ, he will use this language, he will say, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, what what is he saying there? Well, uh, to understand what he's saying, um, you do have to understand Romans 7 as well. I didn't print that out for you. And Paul is making a play on words here that's a little bit tricky unless you think deeply about it. He's using a play on words there are two ways that we speak of a law, okay? There's two, at least two ways that we speak of a law. The first is like a statute, right? You know, if you get up and you're really angry at your neighbor and you assault them, don't do that, by the way, here. It'll be awkward on Easter morning. 
okay? Deal with it later. Don't do that. But if you were to do that, you'd be guilty of violating the Pennsylvania state code, okay? And, you know, we would call the police on you and, and, and deal with it that way. You'd be guilty of violating a statute. That's one way that we use this word law. There's a second way that we use the word law. Is anyone here a physicist? Any physicists in the house? Okay, well, we need to work on that. If you know a physicist, please invite them to church. Be, we're deficient in this way, right? So a physicist speaks of laws not as a statute, right, that you can violate, but as an always repeatable phenomenon that is so repeatable that has been proven through scientific inquiry beyond a shadow of a doubt so that we can rightly speak of the laws of physics, right? We have the law of gravity. We have a phenomenon that takes place in our world, and it's always the case under certain circumstances so that we can call it a law. And that is the way that he's actually using this word in some, uh, in, in some of the instances in our passage, and in particular in Romans 7. So let me read to you from uh, Romans 7, verse Uh, 21, he says this. He says, I find it then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law which is in my members. Do you hear what he's saying? I find it to be a law in myself that whenever I would try to do good, that evil is there with me. And that's the same sense that he's using this word in verse 2. And of course, he's using a play on words because he will be flip-flopping back between the law of God, that is the statutes of God, used in that sense, and the law that is present within us, namely the fact that there's something so repeatable in us that it's guaranteed similarly to the ways in which the laws of gravity are guaranteed, right? That we can, you can pick up your phone and you can drop it and you can be absolutely 100% convinced that it's going to fall because we know that gravity is a law. In the same way, that is what he is saying here in verse 2, as he's saying, there is a law of sin and death, meaning that it is absolutely repeatable that sin is at work in you and will work death in you. Right? That that is absolutely, you can take it to the bank, that when you would do good, that sin is right there with you. And friends, I think what, um, what, what these scholars, these secular scholars are noticing is the law of sin and death. That simply by moving away from Christian teaching does not resolve your guilt. Why? Because you actually are guilty. Right? You are guilty. You cannot escape that, that even when you would do good, even when you would go out and seek to reduce your carbon footprint, even when you would go out and seek to serve the poor, even if you would go out and and give money to good causes, there's something inside of you that won't let you off the hook, that it's never enough, that that there's no amount of... uh, virtue signaling, there's no amount of saying the right things, of supporting the right causes, of doing the right actions, of following all the rules, which of course in our day are always changing, are always increasing, right? There's no amount of doing that that can actually deal with your guilt because it is a law that when you would do good, that evil is still right there with you. 
that, there is, that there, we, we need something from outside of us to deal with this reality. And that is what secular scholars are, are beginning to recognize, and it's something that the Scripture has always taught and has always understood. And what this passage is saying, what Paul is doing is he's drawing to a conclusion. It's this word, therefore, in verse 1. He's saying, if you understand what Christ was doing in his life, death, burial, and resurrection you would understand that his desire for you is a freeing. That his desire for you is to have a freeing effect, to, to break the pattern of control of your life through guilt so that you could actually be genuinely set free. Right? That one of the realities of becoming a Christian is that you have more freedom than you previously did. Right, that you can enjoy life, that you can live in this world, that you can serve your neighbors, that you can be engaged in the things that our world calls us to be engaged in, that you can serve the poor, that you can enjoy art, that you can go on vacation, that you can live in this world, that you can relate with people that disagree with you, and you can do so without the controlling influence of guilt, that you can experience a degree of freedom. How does that work? Well, he tells us here in verse 3, he says, reason that you've been set free, the basis of this freeing is God doing something that could not be accomplished by the law, right? That, that in, the, in the story of Jesus Christ, that God did something that could not be accomplished by the law. What is he saying? Well, what I think he's saying there is he's, he's observing what, what our, our opening article observed, which is that there's no amount of actions that can actually deal with guilt, right? There's no amount of donation. There's no amount of serving. There's no amount of saying certain things. There's no amount of living in a certain way that can actually deal with guilt. The way the Scripture articulates it, it says the law cannot do what God did, meaning following God's law, right? Honoring your parents, living with integrity, having no other gods before him, serving the Sabbath, as all y'all are doing today. Thank you for that, right? No amount of those very good things is able to actually set you free, right? That even folks that seem like they try the hardest in these ways, without verse 3 happening, right, without God doing something, you still find yourself to be a prisoner. And it's one of the reasons that you know, I think legalism, uh, which is it's very prevalent inside and outside of the church, I think we're seeing a form of it in our culture, um, but we see it inside and outside of the church, but legalism never actually addresses the heart of the matter because it can't. There's no amount of law-keeping, whether it's God's law or the laws of our culture, that can set you free. Verse 3, it cannot be done by the law. So therefore, God did it. What did he do? Well, he goes on to say this. He says, uh, the law was weakened by the flesh and could not accomplish these things. So what did God do? It says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What is he saying there? He condemned sin in the flesh. He's saying that God looked at the powerlessness of the law. He looked at all the attempts that had been made and all the failure after failure after failure. And so he, the Lord Jesus and his Father agree 
that Jesus will take upon human flesh. And it says he condemned sin in the flesh. What is it saying? He condemned his son. He's saying that the son of God absorbs the condemnation, the real tangible guilt that you feel that our culture cannot seem to get rid of, that the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He followed all of, all of the laws perfectly, but nonetheless, God condemns him, that he underwent a real condemnation. And it says that he did that so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What does that mean? It means that if you come to Christ... If you come to him as Savior, saying, I want, I want to be set free, he says, I will absorb every particle of guilt that is rightfully due you. I will take it upon myself. I will undergo a severe and a real condemnation so that, verse 1, for, you, for those of you who are in Christ this morning, or, or will be, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. Who is, who is there to condemn? He will ask later on the chapter. Answer, nobody. That you will be 100% holy, righteous, and pure in God's eyes. That there will be no condemnation. And he goes on to say this. He says that the righteous requirement of the law, this is verse 4, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And this is how this works, Right? The Lord Jesus lives the life that we should have lived. He's, he's subsequently condemned for crimes he did not commit. Why is that? Because he's being condemned for Darren's crimes. The things that I left undone last week, the ways that I failed to serve my neighbors, the, the unkind thought, word, and deeds that, that have emanated from my life that sadly emanate on a regular basis, right? the ways that I was greedy and not generous, the ways that my, my mind was unpure instead of pure, by all of these conditions, Jesus Christ had to accept the guilt for, for me and for you. And what he does after that is it says that he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. Right? It says the, the whole focus is on getting the Holy Spirit to come close to you. And friends, that's really where I think the rubber meets the road in this whole matter. Right? The, the, the way that the guilt is is felt differently by you, right? Maybe you're here and you're saying, I feel guilty. You know, I, I consider myself a Christian, and yet my ex existential reality of this is not, is not like this at all. The way that it's dealt with is through the Holy Spirit having an experience with you that is properly uh, described as being inside of you, of being in your mind. And that's what he'll articulate here in this passage. He'll say, when you live according to the Spirit, when you live in communion and fellowship with the Spirit, what's happening is that you are experiencing that fulfillment of the law, that you are experiencing life as though you've never, ever sinned, as though there's no ounce of guilt because what you are experiencing is you are experiencing the relationship with God that you were created to have. You know, the Lord Jesus would say when he was um, about to depart from his disciples, he would he said this, he said, you know, it's better that I go away. I know that you don't want me to go away. It's better that I go away because if I don't go away, you will not have the Holy Spirit. But if I go away, I will send him to you. 
that he will speak to you, that you will live in a relationship with him. And friends, what that means, therefore, uh, I want to just close with saying this. What it means, therefore, is that if you want to be free, if you want to experience a countercultural freedom, the way to do that is to seek the presence and to seek a relationship with the Holy Spirit, right? And that's, by the way, perhaps you're here and you've been a Christian for, you know, 89 years. Praise the Lord, right? What is, the, what is the word of Christ for you this morning? The word of Christ is, could you seek a deeper communion with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit? Could you seek to know him more this year? Could you, and how, you're like, how do I do that? Answer, passage says, setting the mind on the things of the Spirit. Could you commune with him at a deeper level this year? Could you become reacquainted to the things that he likes and to the things that he hates? Right? Could you seek to know him as you seek to know Christ more deeply? Could you seek to become a person more changed by him, right? In a world where forgiveness is so difficult, where we are constantly condemning, 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 condemning. And by the way, this article will go on to say, why are people so fast to condemn? The answer that he will suggest is that the reason we're so fast to condemn is because when we're actually condemning others, we have a moment of relief from our own guilt, Right, that it's therapeutic to condemn, and that's why we see so much condemnation over and over and over and over again all throughout our culture, all throughout every experience. is condemning, 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 condemning. Why? He says, because there's a therapeutic side of it. But there's a better therapy, my friends, in the passage, and that is the presence, the power, the reality, the work of God's Holy Spirit that he has purchased for you the cost of his own son as he drinks death in so deeply and then he is raised again to new life and he sends his holy spirit out he breathes upon his church his holy spirit so that you can live not alone subject to your own whims subject to your own performance but you can live in a powerful relationship with almighty holy god as his spirit lives in you